Welcome to Soundtrack Your Life, a podcast about soundtracks, music, and movies. Each episode features a guest and focuses on a specific soundtrack and the personal stories connected to it. Now here's your host, Ryan Pack. I'm Ryan Pack, and this is Soundtrack Your Life. I'd like to thank you for listening today, wherever you are. Today we have Scott in Toronto from This Is The Greatest Song I Ever Heard In My Entire Life. That podcast releases episodes every other Tuesday. So why don't you tell us about This Is The Greatest Song I Ever Heard In My Entire Life, Scott? Well, thanks so much for having me and and for saying the name of the podcast. I know it's a mouthful. Um, Every single person I talked to before launching said, you shouldn't call it that. But... <laughs> but the contrarian streak in me just made me want to uh, do it more. So, um, so yeah, this the podcast. Uh, this is the greatest song I've ever heard in my entire life. Uh, I interview, you know, musicians, artists, writers, uh, comedians, other cool people about their taste in music, and then the song that makes them scream. This is the greatest song I've ever heard in my entire life. Um, you were recently a guest, which I am very appreciative of. So people can. Check that out. We talk about the Blur song, uh, The Universal. And I'm excited to uh, be here talking about music and lyrics, one of my all-time favorite movies and soundtracks. Yes, and please uh, check out Scott's podcast. I can say honestly that I have listened to every single episode of his podcast. Big fan. Wow, I appreciate that. And you are never allowed to change the name. (laughs) <laughs> the name is amazing. The name is very like they will know us by the trail of the dead. It's very Godspeed, exactly. Black Emperor. You know, like it's exactly. it's a mouthful, but in a good way. So yes, thank, thank you, you for being here. You. It's Fiona's when the pawn hits. <laughs> Today we are going to talk about the 2007 Mark Lawrence film, Music and Lyrics. So Scott, why did you pick Music and Lyrics today? Well, we were talking. You know. I guess the the main thing is that I'm a huge Adam Schlesinger fan. Um, Adam Schlesinger, of course, of Fountains of Wayne and Ivy and uh, tons of songs for TV and film, including That Thing You Do, which is my all-time favorite film. Um, And so he wrote a lot of the songs in this, and that was like a major appeal to me when it came out and when I was like, uh, when I first saw the film and was watching it a lot. Um, and it's also, it's just a great film. The songs are great. Uh, the chemistry between Hugh Grant and Drew Barrymore is great. And, um, so I just thought it'd be fun to talk about. Yeah. So, you know, we did a couple of movies earlier this year that incorporate Adam Schlesinger's songwriting in That Thing You Do and... Josie and the Pussycats. Mm-hmm. We did that back in April because that's when he passed away in April 2020. I guess this would be like the third movie that I would have picked for that month. Right. So I'm I'm pretty picky with my romantic comedies and I think I watched this one specifically for the same reasons you did. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, Adam Schlesinger is involved right. and he wrote a bunch of the songs, so at least I'm going to enjoy that. Yeah. But I think it. I think it also. I mean, we'll get into it more. But I think it just holds up as a rom com too. I think the writing is great. 
their chemistry is great. Um, and like all the music stuff is, is added bonus to it. But um, I think it holds up as a film. I think it holds up outstandingly well. I haven't seen this movie since 2007, which is now a, a fair amount of time in the distant past. Mm. And I feel like it is a very non-cloying, non-annoying romantic comedy. And if those are very rare things, super hard to find. I think you can credit Drew Barrymore and Hugh Grant for, for a lot of that. But if it didn't have this sort of like musical center, I, I don't think that it would hold up as well as it does. And I think, um, I think what's, what's really rad about this movie too is um, it, it really feels like you're in this world of songwriting with them. For those that don't know, because they're not old enough to have been functioning people in 2007 and have not been able to stream this because I don't think it's for free streaming anywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, Music and lyrics is the tale of Drew Barrymore, who is the lady that waters plants for Hugh Grant's washed up 1980s pop star character. And and Hugh Grant in this movie is essentially like the guy from Wham who isn't George Michael. That's his character. Yeah. Andrew Richards. Right. Um, I can't remember his name, and I think that's kind of the point. I didn't even look it up, because I knew I'd forget it as soon as I learned it. The non-famous guy from Wham. Mm-hmm. So that's like the setup for him, and I think uh, I think we can all agree that Hugh Grant plays a washed-up 80s pop star with like absolute panache. Like You really believe it. Absolutely. Well, I think he just basically plays the same character from About a Boy, where he is a washed up middle-aged man who's just living off his dad's songwriting royalties in this movie he's just living off his own songwriting royalties from 20 years prior and i think even hugh grant would agree that it's hard to keep hugh grant characters separate because they are all essentially the same person or like shades of the same person yes not not to can can i bring us on a slight tangent i know it's early to go off on a tangent always but because I totally agree, Hugh Grant is extremely charming in everything he does in the way that, like, he plays Hugh Grant, and, you know, whether it's Two Weeks Notice or Music and Lyrics or Notting Hill or Love Actually, right? It's, like, the same guy, which is what makes his performance in Paddington 2 <laughs> so amazing, because it's like, okay, so he's, you know, 30 years into his career, and he was like, what if I acted you know and he does and he's so good in that movie in like not really playing a Hugh Grant type he has like shades of it but there's so much more going on and it's like the first role in his entire career where he's like really doing it and it's amazing and I was I was and am mad that he didn't get nominated for Best Supporting Actor for an Oscar for Paddington 2. I just want to say that I'm I'm really glad that we uh, made a Paddington 2 reference before the 30-minute mark. I thought it would come <laughs> up so much later. Right. But I am a huge Paddington stan. Both movies. Yeah. I think they're fantastic. Yeah. Excellent fare. I'm glad that Hugh Grant has found this next act in life. I tried to read some article in a vain attempt at research that was basically like, see why Hugh Grant decided to quit acting after music and lyrics. And I'm like, the, the what? But it was behind a paywall and no one pays us for this. So I wasn't, right, I wasn't right. gonna pay for my subscription to like the independent UK. 
Yeah. But yeah, I think yeah. he, I think essentially he got kind of burnt out on playing a lot of these same characters, took some breaks, had a little regroup, maybe came back really with a, with a vengeance in Paddington 2. I think he had something to yeah. prove. It's true. Because then after that, then he did, you know, all these other like more prestige things and he's like really doing it now. He's, he's coming really, to his own. He's really doing it. I mean, Scott, so just to kind of, to get back to like the strengths of Hugh Grant, because he's got some strengths, right? Maybe some yeah. like under underutilized and underappreciated strengths. I thought he was a pretty competent pop singer in this. Yeah. Ryan's like, no. No, I think so. He sells playing the piano in this movie pretty good. I think he sells it. Yeah. It's not totally. an easy thing to do. Not everyone could do that. Oh, and his pop dance? Oh. That's when he's when he talks about how he's got, you know, like the the pop hip from his days in <laughs> his days in fake wham. Like yeah. I'm totally stealing that. Every time I get up and there's a creek, I'm gonna be like, it's just my pop hip. Also, pop is such a good name for a fake wham so band in the eighties. So fucking great. It the monosyllabic thing is the same. Like you're getting yeah. wham, but you're not getting wham. Uh, it's onomatopoeia. The, yeah. the way that Meaningless Kiss, the song, stands oh. in for Careless Whisper is just yeah. a goddamn delight. <laughs> so good. I can't, I can't even begin to tell you how happy remembering that that exists made me. Yeah. Well, let's start at the beginning, which starts with Pop Goes My Heart, the music video, and how just on point that on video point. is. It's on point, you guys. Yeah. Well, so this is one written by Andrew Wyatt, not uh, Adam Schlesinger, who we were just talking about before uh, we started recording, um, is maybe, I guess, best known for being in that band Mike Snow, Mike with two eyes. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Um, but has also... But none, of the, but none of the guys in the band are named Mike Snow. Because <laughs> right. why would they right. be? It's one of those. Yeah, you yeah, didn't do yeah, that yeah. in the aughts. Right. Um, but he's also, you know, written and produced a lot of other stuff for film, including... Uh, co-writing Shallow from A Star is Born. No, stop. I love this, like, Matryoshka Russian doll of, like, songwriters that are writing, like, fake hit songs inside movies. It's amazing. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't realize until this most recent rewatch. I I didn't really look into the credits. I kind of just assumed Adam Schlesinger had wrote everything. Um... But yeah, this uh, Andrew Wyatt totally nailed it as um, as this fake 80s pop song. It's kind of, it's very meta in a way because the movie revolves around this very pressurized, you know, like four day span where Hugh Grant and Drew Barrymore have to make a hit song, right? And then there is this hit song that they eventually write, Adam Schlesinger's song that features in the movie. And I'm, the whole time I'm thinking, like, how hard is it? Like, how high a bar is it to clear to be able to make a legitimate sounding song in this kind of situation? I don't think that that's easy. Oh, totally. I mean, that's, you know, you guys talked on the That Thing You Do episode, right? Like, that song needs to be so good. I mean, it plays, what, like 11 times in the movie, right? And it has to be believable as, like, a 60s pop hit right and it's really hard to do i mean i i remember reading an interview or watching an interview with Boz lerman talking about moulin rouge because that's the same thing right the character christian is supposed to be this amazing poet and he was like well 
I mean, how how can I write these songs that are supposed to be this amazing poetry, right? So that's why they use all pre-existing songs except for the the one at the end, you know, to say like, okay, well, these are unimpeachably great songs, right? No one can say like, oh, this doesn't, you know, pass the bar. But with something like this, yeah, like they have to do that. They have to clear that bar of like, this is a believable, and, and Pop Goes My Heart especially is interesting because it has to be believable as an 80s pop hit, but also kind of be funny yeah. um, as like a parody of it because you right. are watching it in this kind of comedic uh, situation, so. Right, and if I'm not mistaken, I think there are three songs that he performs that are the the pop band songs, right? And all of them are so realistic. Yeah. <laughs> in, like, that very 80s, like, synth production kind of way that, again, you, like, really buy them, and you really buy that he is that washed-up singer performing at Knott's Berry Farm. Yeah. Which, by the way, I don't know. I don't know if you know Knott's Berry Farm, Scott. It's a bit of a tangent. Yeah. Are you I familiar do. with Knott's Berry Farm? I am. Although the where they actually perform though is is Adventure at Adventureland, Land. Yeah. which is on Long Island where I grew up. Okay, so I so went to Adventureland a lot. This is what this is what's weird, right? Is that so? Like Adventureland, East Coast. Knott's right. Berry Farm is here on the West Coast, and for those who have never been to Knott's Berry Farm. It is this sort of like unholy mixture of a place where you go to eat fried chicken and pies and then you want to barf them up on like the supreme scream ride that drops you from like 12 stories up, right? Right. And then you get funnel cake. And then you get funnel cake, like just to really make like a swirl. And then you take pictures with Snoopy. You take pictures with Snoopy because for some inexplicable reason, um, the peanuts are involved. We don't know why. They were probably the cheapest licensing that they could get for like a berry-based theme park. But Knott's Berry Farm is mentioned like five times in music and lyrics. So as like a local person from Southern California, I'm like, did Knott's Berry Farm pay for this like pro-jam product placement? It's very weird to me. Yeah. Also, as somebody who had to perform during eighth grade choir at Knott's Berry Farm, I can tell you that the indignity of the experience of performing between like the wooden roller coaster and the jam stand is very real. I mean, podcast <laughs> listeners can't see this, but Ryan and I both made the same <laughs> <laughs> mouth wide open face as soon as you said that. It's a true story is me in like my choir sweater and my blue shorts in the, like, old, the fake Old West Town between, like, the jam stand and the, like, Supreme Scream. Wow. Yeah. I just saw a billboard for it today where they're doing the Boysenberry Festival. There you go. Maybe maybe Pop is performing. <laughs> Another big thing with Knott's Berry Farm is the Boysenberry. Yeah. yeah. They're a really big deal. We don't know why. I thought it was also interesting. There was a, a line when his manager, Bob Garrett... It's kind of telling him that he has a lot of shows canceled. He says that Great Adventure, Six Flags, that they were supposed to do 10 10 shows in a row, like 10 days in a row. That seems like a lot. That's a very big residency anyway. Yeah. Excessive. And Blake, I just love that they didn't even choose like a proper county fair circuit. They just chose like kind of D-list theme parks from around the country (laughs) that aren't even close to each other. Right. Because I overthink things and my brain will get stuck on dumb shit when I watch movies. It's like the whole thing. I'm like, but. Right. Yeah. They were like going to Texas and Iowa or something. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'm like, well, that shows how desperate his career is. Right. is like Knott's, no, 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 not, not, not Knott's Berry Farm. Like we're still doing Knott's Berry Farm, right? I'm like just, I can't lose Knott's Berry Farm. It just, right? I can't lose Knott's. And he says it like five times. And I'm like, do you even have the money to fly to Knott's? Is this even like efficient or financially stable for you? Like that's in California. But anyway, yeah. this is now a tangent about Knott's right. Berry Farm. And there's also the very unrealistic, oh, maybe you'll work your way up to Disneyland. Like Disneyland doesn't have concerts like that. Right. No, didn't, no. Mm -mm. The best you can do at Disneyland manager, is, yeah. You know? it, yeah, I think he's just trying to pump him up, probably. <laughs> yeah. That's not a real thing. Yeah. Let, let's switch from 80s pop to, to, to aughts pop with Haley Bennett. Amazing. Amazing performance from Haley Bennett in this film. I, again, yeah. it's you. she sells it and you buy it and her as this like unholy uh, hybrid of Christina and Brittany is um, extremely real. I think what's interesting about that is because it is very like Brittany coded uh, visually and aesthetically. But then there are times in like all of her songs where I don't know if it was like Haley Bennett saying like, no, I want people to know that I can actually sing. She like belts in a lot of these songs and it's like, oh, okay, actually, <laughs> you're like a pretty good singer in a way that like, and, and this is no shade of Britney Spears, who's one of the greatest pop artists of all time, but like, she's not a singer like that, you know? <laughs> well, I think that's where there's that, there's that line of, uh, my fans just want me to dance. <laughs> yeah. That's I have a, Shakira's breathing down my neck. Shakira's breathing down my neck. Yeah, I have a feeling there's some cut scenes that maybe go a little deeper into her backstory or something, or they give her more uh, dimension as perhaps a struggling chanteuse or whatever that people. Yeah. Just, oh, I don't want. I don't want any more. Right. I don't want dimension either. I'm just saying, like maybe it's there, and they decided, like, yeah, we don't need any of that. Actually, we can like she could remain like an incredibly two dimensional pop star character. No, I want entering Booty Town to be, like, her most profound thought. The thing about entering Booty Town, though, is that it's good. Yeah, I kind of got stuck on that song listening to the soundtrack I know, this week. I did, sadly, I did, too. Are we all in agreement that entering to Booty Town is actually, like, legit? Yeah. Like, yeah. it slaps. Yeah, it's not bad. Yeah. Also an Andrew White production. Right. I think that's why it shows, right, is that even the songs that are supposed to be kind of bad are actually sort of good. Yeah, exactly. Catchy, fun. Yeah, and I, I also feel like the intentionally bad way back into love that, you know, is teased by Haley Bennett with the Indian sitar and the <laughs> orgasmic sounds. Like, I feel like that is an accurate portrayal of what they would do to a, a <laughs> song written by Andrew Fletcher and, so and Sophie Fisher. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's like, that's my one thing about this film is that A Way Back Into Love, the version that they end up with, like, she wouldn't record that song. Like, no. that wouldn't be a hit in 2007, no. you know? No, it's completely, great it's great. But. It's super, it's great. Um, but, and just like, you know, the film notes a million times over to really hammer home how great it is. Like, it's got a great melody, the lyrics really work. All of it is wonderful. Is it a realistic 2007 chart-topping hit? Absolutely not. I think her right. version that sounded more like Toxic would probably <laughs> fare yeah. a lot better in the landscape. I also kind of feel 
maybe it's an unpopular opinion, but love autopsy, like that could have been something. Like that to me, that's like a magnetic field song. Like that could that could fit <laughs> yes. right in on sixty-nine love songs that you would not know. Totally. Potential. I wish they'd finished that one. Well yeah, I like that they, they do include it on the soundtrack as the last track. Um but it's just like that snippet that we hear in the song. It's, it's like not forty seconds finished, yeah, yeah. of love autopsy, but I absolutely could have been more. Maybe there's like a weird kind of like indie turn that they take after the movie. Oh, I have like a really hot take theory about that. Um so I was worried that this movie was not going to translate well to 2022, right? The pop landscape has changed so much. And then I was like, so, well, who, who's the big pop star now? It's Taylor, right? You know, you can argue maybe Billie Eilish, Lord, yeah. whatever, but Taylor's kind of the big one, right? And I was like, oh, you know, this song at the end, way back in love, this very, van- I don't want to call it vanilla version, but compared to what they wanted to do with the before right it's very much what was written for them right before it was and not tweaked at all and i was like you know i don't really see cora wanting to do something just so like straight you know such a normal sort of sounding song it's not like she's doing this you know taylor like folklore evermore sort of turn right and then I was looking up Haley Bennett's career, and she's in Cyrano, mm-hmm. so she is singing on a soundtrack that Bryce and Aaron Dessner curated. So I was like, oh, maybe she would, because in real life, that's what she did. That's so true. I didn't even wow. think about that connection, yeah. That's deep, Ryan. Yeah. Did you see Cyrano? I never got a chance to see it. I've only seen, like, clips. Okay. Yeah. I, I want to see that eventually. Yeah, I saw Peter Dinklage perform with, like, The National on, like, Colbert or something. Oh, wow. Very cool. But, yeah, it's just kind of weird how this movie kind of, like, it's not trying to predict anything. It's not trying to be, like, a biting satire of anything. But there's a lot about it that it just ended up getting right anyways. Totally. Yeah. It's much more accurate than Don't Look Up. I think that speaks to having people with real like song craft and musicianship behind a lot of this. Right? I think that's what you feel when you watch it is that it has that backbone, even though it is kind of this like frothy light rom-com movie. It's one of those films that could have been really bad if not for the strength of the music that's put into it and the really the, the lead actors. And also Kristen Johnson and her like weird smoky voice. So good. Yeah. I love when she shows up in things. But no, I think I think that's so true. They found this balance because like you were saying, Ryan, like it's not like a searing satire. Like the movie is not about pop music. And so because of that, you could have gotten a version where they were like, Well, that's not really what the the movie's a rom com, the music stuff is on the side, so like we're not really gonna put that much effort or care into it, right? And that would be terrible right so they find this this balance of like well yeah it's like not about the music that's not the movie we're making but we want the music to feel real and so we're going to get these people who like know what they're doing uh to to create this movie it just gives it so much more authenticity even though obviously like there's a ton of stuff about like writing songs and producing demos that's like it's very you know they're cutting corners and and making it fit into a 
90 minute rom-com but it's still uh the songs themselves have this kind of authenticity to them so yeah even the concert at the end with cora like it doesn't feel like a dated concert like with the costume changes like it feels like yeah this is what you would see in 2022 at coachella totally yeah absolutely i would go see that concert i would too <laughs> no it felt it felt very and maybe it's because trends are circular you know they, they cycle back and i think we might be at a moment where like aughts culture hopefully not like all of it not like all of the low-rise jeans and misogyny and weird stuff but like some of the like aesthetic elements of like aughts culture are starting to like get bumped up in notoriety again so it did kind of feel like something that you could see in a coachella stage now and it wouldn't be out of sync it's kind of like harry styles bringing out shania twain like for the nostalgia hit is a little bit how it feels at the end when cora brings out hugh grant's character right like that could happen now maybe maybe this started that maybe this was like the first place where that started trending yeah i will say of all the stuff in the movie what feels dated not is not like the music or the satire on pop it's the like that mid-aughts like fat phobic stuff yes (laughs) um yeah yeah they like work for a weight loss company and there's like the weird line that that is funny in the way that they play it but when hugh grant goes there and he's talking to the receptionist and he asks her, how much do you weigh? And her yes. answer is, it fluctuates. I fluctuate. You know? Which is a dark joke. It's, But yeah, it's just that stuff was so permeating all of culture for that decade. Uh, yeah, and you know, like it brings me back to some uh, really bad uh, Saved by the Bell after school special. Like if I just mm. like take a bunch of green tea pills, I'm going to, it's the low restraints, will be, it'll be fine, right? Like, right. <laughs> It's definitely, like, still a lot of really toxic bullshit around body image that persists now, but was really, really bad then. And I think people just kind of like, so that is, like, the only cringe stuff, I think, that's truly in it. Yeah. That's a little cringeworthy. And I know we bring this up a lot, but I don't know what the hell is going on with Hugh Grant's characters and fat phobia. Because there's, like, a whole theme. It's, like, Bridget Jones, his character in Love Actually. Yeah. This... Is there That's something true. in his contract that says, like, we have to be fat phobic or I'm not doing the movie? Yeah. Well, what's weird in, in Love Actually is his character is like, what are you talking about? She's not. He's cool. But everybody he, else right, is, like, but, being but ridiculous. But it's still played for that, that joke. Yeah. yeah. And then the Bridget Jones is so ridiculous because Renee Zellweger is like, yeah. That's a, it's a different podcast, but this is a it tangent. Is but so. we feel like I feel obligated to bring this up for our listeners that are like, "Are you celebrating Hugh Grant's fat phobia?" No, <laughs> right. no, we're not. We see it. I don't think he fat shames in about a boy. Well, we don't know. I'd have to go back and watch it. Yeah, it's been maybe a while since I've watched it. He, maybe he, he fat might. shames a kid. <laughs> I'm pretty know. sure he doesn't fat shame Marcus. Pretty sure is not sure. Yeah. But, you know, Rachel Weiss is in the movie and he could have fat shamed her. I don't know. We don't know. It's crazy. We don't know. Is that, is it Tony Collette is the mom or am I making yeah. that up? Oh, it is. Okay. I gotta rewatch that movie. That's Let's good. rewatch. We'll, that, we'll do that one next because that's got a okay, good soundtrack yeah. attached to it. Yeah. It does. It does. <laughs> yeah. We, so I was texting with Nicole earlier today and we were talking about how Haley Bennett, uh, her character Cora brings out Andrew Fletcher. He sings a little song. The only thing like missing in the 2022 version of this is 
you know, he sings Pop Goes My Heart and like she duets a little with him and she like dances. <laughs> yes, exactly. While headlining Coachella. Yeah. Um, and I do just have to say it's uh, it's Alex Fletcher and Drew. Oh, Alex Fletcher. Alex Fletcher. Sorry. Well, it's because now I'm, now I'm, now I'm combining exactly, the Wham right. guy and oh, no. a- Andrew Ridgely is the Wham guy. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> you know what I mean they, about his name, though. Nobody remembers <laughs> exactly Andy Ridgely. Yeah. I knew we were going to get it wrong. He wasn't <laughs> even going to try. I think one thing that's interesting on this soundtrack is. Um, they include the song Tony the Beat by The Sounds, which mm-hmm. plays at um, the Cora characters like having this party, this house party, and they go, and that's the song that's playing at the party. Um, but that's the only one on the soundtrack that's like an existing song that's outside of the movie. You know, it's just there, uh, which I thought was an, a, kind of a weird inclusion. Yeah, and I don't really feel like Cora's character would be listening to the sounds. I don't either. It felt incongruous. It's a little too cool, It felt yeah. odd. Um, I feel like that was one of those inclusions where it was maybe, like, the best track they could get on short notice for an ambient, like, party situation. I don't know. Who knows how that came about, but it definitely felt a little bit off. A little jarring. Like, I thought it was just going to be, like... Indian sitar music with like beats behind it, you know, because that's what she's all into, and that's why she wants to make her her pop song sound like that. I thought it would be something kind of, you know, very Madonna, mm. like like what you would expect at a Madonna party, like whatever religion she's into. I mean, it's, like, it's probably be totally. It's definitely like they tried to get Ray of Light, but it fell through or something, and they just kind of like, and oh, the sounds are here. I don't know. Let's... Yeah, you you can't afford Ray of Light. No, absolutely not. But I agree yeah. that it didn't it didn't quite feel the way that it was supposed to feel. It's a, a little, little bit of a little bit of a blip on this one. Yeah. It's the most odds moment of the soundtrack. It's the most odds moment, right? <laughs> yeah. And and so I think like those are the moments where it's like, as everybody's I think said, it it does a really good job of kind of cultivating its own universe of music that doesn't necessarily age or and doesn't fit into an existing trend. So it can kind of, it's like its own capsule. But then you hear the sounds and you're like, oh yeah, we're in 2007. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> so Adam Schlesinger wrote Meaningless Kiss, which we talked about way back into Love, which we've talked about. Don't Write Me Off, which he performs at the concert by himself on the piano. But he did not write Dance With Me Tonight, which was written by Clyde Lawrence. Yeah. Mm. So... <laughs> So this is one we were just saying uh, before. So I had never really looked into it until I was like watching this back today um, for this podcast. And I was like, Clyde Lawrence, I I don't know that name. Um, So this is (laughs) Mark Lawrence wrote and directed this film. Clyde is his son. Um, Oh, no way. so, So it's a little nepotism. But here's the thing about so. Clyde Lawrence story on Wikipedia I find to be very funny. So Mark Lawrence also made Miss Congeniality and there's the song that they sing as like the Miss uh Miss United States like pageant song as they're all walking out and um I guess the the song that they had written Mark Lawrence didn't really like and so he asked his son who was 5 at the time. He's like, "Why don't you write a song?" 
he wrote a song and then the rest of the producers like said oh yeah that's great not knowing it was written by his five-year-old son and that's like the introduction to his songwriting career um (laughs) writing the song for miss congeniality at five years old and then for this film he's like in high school when he wrote i think he's like 12. yeah it's crazy really i was ready to be mad at the nepotism but now i'm just impressed exactly when i saw the I saw the Clive Lawrence Wikipedia entry. I saw that he was the son. I was just like, oh, bullshit nepotism. And then I saw five years old. <laughs> but so here's the thing. So I, um, so currently Clive is in a band with his sister, Gracie. They're, they have a band called Lawrence. And I only know Lawrence because they kept showing up on my TikTok for you page. And I hated it. Every, <laughs> every time I was like, who is this band? Like, why does this, my algorithm keep thinking I want this? Like, I had to, I actually blocked them, the account, because I was like, I don't want to see this band anymore. It's not for me. What do they sound like? It's, you know, kind of like, I I never listened enough to really get it. I think it was just like the timbre of her voice I didn't really like. It's a kind of like bluesy, funky vibe, you know, but like in a Gen Z way that like, I don't know, it was just bothering me at how much it kept showing up on my For You page. So it's maybe unfair. I should give them a fair <laughs> chance. But <laughs> but this song, um, Dance With Me Tonight, that he wrote as like one of the, the pop songs that Hugh Grant performs is great. It's honestly surprising on a number of levels. It's surprising that a... 12 to, to like an adolescent <laughs> kid basically like wrote a dupe of a wham song from the 80s that i feel like shows some serious chops i would have believed that somebody that was more like of that era maybe took a took a run at it so that's wild it really is and i'm sure that like you know a, a lot of these songs were um uh I'm sure it was produced up, you know, and that they took Woody Road and sort of like fleshed it out or whatever. But it's still, it's very impressive. It's a good song. It is a good song. <laughs> it's the one where when he's playing at, at Adventureland, yeah. it's the encore he does at this Adventureland performance and, and Drew Barrymore has to kind of like coax him to go do this song as the encore and explain to him that, you know, she thinks these songs are really special and he should be like happy to perform them and... So it does kind of get like its own moment and then it gets accompanied by all these like really great Hugh Grant dance moves, which I feel like he should patent. (laughs) Yeah, really good. Uh, Ryan and I were talking about how our favorite one is like the revving the motorcycle. Oh, it's it's amazing. Yeah, we we love that. It's so funny because it's like, it's such this weird, unique thing that like you understand why that would be like a signature iconic move because it doesn't like really make sense. No. but it's also like kind of fun. Like I want to get up and do it right now. So I'm, yeah. I'm doing it right now. Like we're doing it on camera right now. Like we're yeah. all everybody rev the motorcycle. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 Both sides. Yeah. <laughs> Should be recording that. I <laughs> think like, one of the uh, best sight gags in the movie is just him playing like the dance dance revolution. Yeah. Hugh Grant has, I think again, underrated physical comedy and he does a pretty pretty dope job with these moves like the hip hop and the motorcycle thing and I know we get to see him like you know slide around in love actually and everybody like loves that moment where he's like in yeah. whatever 
but this is like that, but extended. <laughs> so if you ever want to see Hugh Grant dance embarrassingly a lot, this is definitely the movie for you. Totally. Yeah, I love how they bring it back in the montage where he's like uh, preparing for the concert with Cora and her dancers. And he's kind of like off to the side and the choreographer is trying to like straighten him out. And then he just like breaks it out real good. He's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> no, stop. Yeah. Yeah. There's a little bit of like, like stop being you. Yeah, please, please, no more. There's a little bit of like Tom Jones thrown in too. Like yeah. it's a little bit of that like um, middle-aged woman like flinging panties sort of vibe. Yeah, I, I don't know. I I feel like it's so often discussed how like in the film industry now like they don't make movies like of this budget anymore, right? Like you don't get a rom com with forty million dollars that can like film a whole sequence at Madison Square Garden with this huge budget concert, you know? And it's always like, yeah, it's so sad when watching movies like this and be like, oh yeah, like they, they wouldn't do that now. If they were making this rom-com, like they would end up at like the kids school play or something, right? Like that's how it would end because they don't have the budget to, to film at Madison Square Garden. They just don't make these movies anymore. Yeah, and it's crazy. Like, I remember watching it. I remember enjoying it. But I never, I don't remember that it made $140 million. It's huge. What? So yeah. It seems like a lot for the time, too. Just that for inflation. Yeah. Big returns. Yeah, and if you think about, you know, between 2000 and 2010, like, what is the defining romantic comedy of... The decade, I don't think a lot of people would point to this film. Like, I feel like it's kind of this unheralded sort of movie. Yeah. Like, it's more of, like, a cult favorite than it is, like, oh, like, I think everyone would be like, oh, like, The Proposal or, like, something right. like that. I, and it's, maybe guesses. it's because it's kind of, yeah. it's kind of small in a lot of ways, you know? It's not, um, there isn't, like, big dramatic set pieces it doesn't move around a lot it's not like some sweeping epic like it's fairly it's a capsule movie right Mm -hmm. like it it doesn't um do anything too flashy but it has a lot of really nice moments and it ends up being just really really charming it like i think you have two of the most bankable rom-com stars in hugh grant and drew barrymore who are always reliable but have like outstanding chemistry they're so great together. I feel like this outshines a lot of her work with Adam Sandler for me. Oh, absolutely. I wish she had gone on to do more with Hugh Grant in some like alternate universe. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah I guess maybe true. that was because he kind of felt burnt out after this. And maybe, um, yeah. Imagine 50 First Dates, but with Hugh Grant. Right? <laughs> and maybe that wouldn't work. I don't know. But... I mean, who knows? Who cares? I'd watch it. Yeah, you just have to get rid of all the Happy Madison (laughs) moments of that movie. Right. I heard the screenwriter of that movie, like, was disillusioned with Hollywood because he was so mad about what they did to his script. (laughs) I could see that. that. He can go cry in his money. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, along with the success of the, the movie, the soundtrack was also a big hit. It was... Reached number five on the Billboard Top Soundtracks chart. That is high. Um, number sixty-three on the Billboard Two Hundred. When people still bought music. When yeah, I mean, sort of. This was like 
on the, the cusp. End, right? I mean, like, yeah. I, I, I remember I definitely did not have this on CD. I had this on LimeWire downloads, yeah. you know? No, I was going to say, I think it was at that turning point where, like, pirated music, digital music was becoming the predominant way that you experience music. But there's this really great... It's really great, like for me, super nostalgic scene where they're CD shopping and they're looking yeah. at the bargain uh, CDs. With and one of them is like his solo record with like the you know nine ninety nine sticker. And I'm almost positive, even though I know this is like shot in New York, and I wouldn't know where it is. I'm almost positive it's a Tower Records. Did it track as a Tower Records to anyone else? Maybe I feel like I never. I don't know if it's because they weren't as popular over here. I just. My youth was like FYE is what we had here a lot. But I don't know, in, in, this, in the city itself, like I grew up on Long Island, there may have been towers in the city, so it totally could be. For me, it, is tower more of a California thing? I, see, this is where I love talking to East Coast guests, because I always want to know, like, what was your version, or did you have that thing? Because for me, Tower Records was like the ultimate suburban hideout. We had a three-story tower records where you could like go up an escalator and be like in the music session and then go down and be in the book section and it was like yeah nirvana so this the internet says that there was one in greenwich village look at you um but they are yeah they're a californian-based company so i don't know if they were ever really as popular here oh no but they had a location on the upper west side near 66th street and broadway that would be where they were I think you're probably right. I mean, I know my way around Tower Records, or at least like my <laughs> my brain does somewhere in there. There's yeah. like a forgotten map of a Tower Records. But regardless, there is that very like it's almost like his his career is at this stage where it's on the wane, and then the record stores are on the wane, and it's just this very like music is changing, and I'm getting older moment that made me consider yeah. 2007 that way. But I think he has a really kind of beautiful, I mean, it's like a little cynical, but he has this beautiful moment in that scene where he says, like, you know, the the sales slowed down, and then we started doing these nostalgia tours, and, you know, the audiences were older, I'm older, but, it like, we we need each other, and we have this good thing going, you know? And it's like, I remember hearing... Um, like Mark McGrath of Sugar Ray saying something similar. It's like, look, like, why am I going to be bitter about people wanting to come and, like, hear these songs that we wrote 20 years ago? Like, that's such a blessing. That's what it, it is what it is. It's, you know, sometimes that's how the career moves. But That is the correct attitude to take, I think, if you're Mark McGrath of, of Sugar yeah. Ray. I think that's the right <laughs> stance. Also, also, wow, Mark McGrath said something I know, sort of wise. Right? I know. Well, yeah, should we talk more about the movie? I feel like we haven't really gotten into the much of the plot of this thing. Let's talk more about the movie. I feel like you, as the selector of said movie, you walk us through a little bit of, of the, the plot of music and lyrics. Wait, can, can we cut to one more thing about the music, though? Better yeah. not be about Sugar Ray. No, it's not about Sugar Ray. But can we talk about the credits and the pop-up video version of yes. Pop Goes My Heart? Let's talk so about good. it. Do you feel like that has aged well? Like, do you think Pete, like, I have a coworker who's 24 years old, and I think if I showed him that, he'd be like, why are these bubbles popping up? Right. <laughs> I used yeah. to have nights where I would stay up the entire night with a 
tiny like eight inch TV in my room just watching pop-up video because I used to play it as part of like VH1's like all night programming because you could just put it on and then play music videos. So for me, pop-up video is extremely nostalgic and anytime there's a reference to it anywhere in media, I'm like deeply satisfied. Yeah, I mean, for me, like I'm, I think a little bit younger than you guys. I'm 31. Yeah. Um, so, even for me, it was sort of I was at the tail end of pop-up video. I'm looking right now. It it ended in 2002, and then they brought it back briefly in like 2011. God um, damn. But how so, long have I been alive? <laughs> So I totally, I totally got the reference. I definitely did watch a lot of pop-up pop video, but it does feel like maybe even in 2007 it was kind of a dated reference. And I, I maybe think it's that's a great... the point. I don't, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. To, it, it was really hard to tell, like, where you kind of are in space-time having watched this movie from 2007, like, in 2022 to begin with. But, yeah, I didn't even think about how, like, pop-up video would have absolutely no relevance to most people why are the bubbles popping up and for those that don't know pop-up video used to be a thing where you would get fun facts about music videos as the music video was playing and they were all they all kind of ranged from like huh informative to like that's absurd yeah well i think it's a nice um play on the sort of uh like where are they now epilogue mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. Which that thing you do does have, right? Where it's just still photos and text. And this is a way of doing that with like, it sort of fits the theme a little bit better. Yes. Yeah. Also, it's just, it's an amazingly, <laughs> I think like well put together simulation of a Wham! video from the 80s. And the stuff that they do with the wig that Hugh Grant is wearing is like, <laughs> I mean, chef's kiss. Hats yeah. off to whoever styled that. It was very good. And they also realized that the Pop Goes My Heart video that begins the movie is not not to, like, take anything away from the movie, but it is still the best part of the movie, and they know it. They know right. it. Like, like, we oh, can oh, just let, play it again. Let's, let's right. encore it. Like, this is the encore <laughs> right. of this concert. We know you want it, but we'll put this pop-up video thing in there so it doesn't just seem like we're playing it again for the sake of playing it again. Totally. But is pop-up video now just YouTube comments? I guess. Or like genius annotations on lyrics? Yeah, maybe like a, maybe. <laughs> but even even then it's not the same thing, you know? I, I feel like the era of music videos being a thing that you actually sit down and watch in succession is not a thing anymore. Maybe if maybe on YouTube, kind of. Right. But Yeah, sometimes I'll like if I'm hanging out with people, we'll like put on a music video and then like let YouTube like run you know selecting and, and it will tend to be like nostalgic things that we're like watching like uh a sum 41 video and then just let it go yeah <laughs> I, I can't remember what it's called but if you have roku if you have a roku player there's this like super terrible streamer that's like a randomizer for old music videos from the 80s and 90s so you can just that's put cool. it on and play like music video roulette but i think there are only like maybe 170 total videos so at some point <laughs> you're stoned and you've reached like all 170 <laughs> and you're like right. oh no they're cycling back it's minute work again <laughs> yeah i would start at safety dance and just see where it goes yeah 
just you can't control it is all I'm saying. So it's sort of like old school that way where you're like, well, um, I have no ability to you can skip it. But you can't control what's going to come next. It's just it's a real good time, guys. I really know how to party. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, the film, you know, we've sort of talked uh, about the basics, but just to sort of get into because I am a big rom-com fan um, and also have like strong negative feelings about rom-coms in addition to loving them. So like in this one, uh, Hugh Grant, uh, uh, Alex Fletcher, washed up uh, pop guy from the 80s, he, you know, floundering in his career, he gets this opportunity to write this song for a big pop star. He needs a lyricist, blah, blah, blah. He ends up with Drew Barrymore, who's not really a lyricist, but she's a writer dealing with some trauma. They start writing this song. What do you guys think about the whole plot of her with the writer who she had this affair with, who then wrote this book sort of about her and she feels like has <laughs> ruined her life because of that? I mean, it feels a, a little it, like it's there for conflicts and is there for like some dramatic conflict and that so Hugh Grant can get his face like thrown in a pile of butter at a fancy restaurant. Right. And so it's, 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 I feel like it's necessary on that level for him to kind of be her champion or establish this like relationship of understanding. And I, and I get it. It's also like just a little bit, a little bit thin, a little unclear, like what is actually happening with that. I kind of wish that guy had gotten punished harder too, because the vindictive side of me. It's just in the epilogue, right? Like, it's just the movie version was was panned. Right. right. And so that's I don't know that that's like wholly satisfying. I would have liked to see that guy get like actually taken down. Yeah, because he has written this book ostensibly about their relationship, but is characterizing it as, you know, she was seducing him and using him to get further in her career. Whereas in her uh, telling of the story, it was very different. Um, I I kind of like that scene where they confront him. And I, I do agree with you that, like, it would be more satisfying to see him really get his comeuppance. But in a way, there's a sort of, like, realism to him not, you know, True. to this, like, powerful white guy just, like, continuing to be successful. Right. And never really, like, having to face consequences for that. Um, my issue in all rom-coms is that going into the third act, the guy has to do something really bad and then redeem himself by the end, right? Like, that's what needs to happen. They need to, like, they're basically come together and then they break apart and then he has to do some big thing to get her back, right? Yes. And I don't think almost ever what the guy does is enough <laughs> to excuse the terrible thing. It's not a grand enough gesture. It's not, like, the thing that he says to her in this is that they're arguing over writing a final verse for Cora's song. And he says, um, what's his name? Sandy, whatever the, the writer's name is. So I, I'm blanking on his name. But he says, he was right about you. <laughs> and that's, like, the cruelest... <laughs> Thing. Yeah, I read the book and he was right. I read the book and he was right. You're crazy. And, you know, that's like the meanest thing. And Drew Barrymore plays it so, so well in that moment of like, I can't believe that you're like, 
that you're saying this to me right now because it's literally like the meanest thing that anyone could possibly say to me in this yeah. moment. Yeah. And I get like, you know, performing a romantic apology song in Madison Square Garden in front of 30,000 people is a big, that is a big romantic gesture. I just, I don't know if it really apologizes for that. Well, it doesn't no. address it, which I think it is, doesn't address is a it. problem, right? And I understand, like, the grandness of the gesture in terms of scale is there, yes. but the specificity around the apology is not. And I agree that that was a really fucked up thing to say. And because the song, Don't Write Me Off Just Yet, is not an apology. It no. is saying, I have a history of being terrible. <laughs> um, and gosh darn it, why don't you give me another chance? And it's like, well, are you really proving that you deserve another chance here? Like, or are you just like being incredibly charming? Which again, he like Hugh Grant, historically in real life, like cheated on his wife with like a young sex worker and everyone in the world was like, actually we forgive you because you're very charming, right? <laughs> um, and so like, I Drag get it. Drag him, like, Drag him. Like I would apologize. I would I would accept the apology too, but it's not really an apology. It's at best it's a statement of like, hey, allow me the time to apologize, right? But then he doesn't he doesn't really do that. Then she just goes backstage and they kiss, you know? <laughs> like yeah, I don't the know. real the real apology is that he got Cora to fix the song. Yeah, which is I mean, I don't know. Right, and he goes, oh, you know, how'd you do it? Like, oh, you know, deep. Behind her bullshit, she's a, a romantic. So when I said it would help win you back, she was all for it. Like, that's kind of the apology, but right. it's, but what he says is so shitty. Yeah. That it's, like, almost irredeemable. It yeah. really is. It's really, really mean. I, I, I appreciate hearing you guys, like, go to bat for her in this situation. I think, like, I, I'm so willing to accept it because my brain has been turned into just a, just a smooth pudding by a whole diet of rom-coms over the years. It's like, oh, of course, like, this makes sense. Yeah, he's probably still a jackass, but, oh, he tried. It's like, you know, seeing a dog make a mess and then get a biscuit. You know, he tried. He's just, he doesn't know any better. It's like the callback to our High Fidelity episode where it's like, maybe he's just a total asshole. Yeah. Narcissist. Yeah. So there's a scene after they are at the dinner and they confront this older writer who she had the relationship with. He, they go back to Hugh Grant's apartment and he says something also mean. He says, like, I think you're hiding behind your resentment about this book because you're afraid that if you don't have that, then you'll need to, like, stand on your own two feet. Which is a mean thing to say in this moment where she is just confronting this, like, huge demon of hers, right? And really failed at doing so. And then he, like, sort of makes it up. He's like... And I think you're too talented and special to not stand up for yourself or stand on your own two feet, which is a sweet thing to say. But like also the way he said what he said first was mean. And then she just sort of like smiles and like, oh, that's so sensitive of you to say. And then they have sex. 
I'm getting I'm getting real pickup artist vibes from that yes, scene. Yes, it's like I'm gonna tear you, you down yes. and then I'm gonna build you up so I can have sex with Maybe you. Maybe yes. that's the uh, two thousand sevenness of it all, right? Is that's that misogyny yeah. I think coming into play a little bit where that this bad behavior is a little bit too palatable and I think by today's standards that wouldn't fly and they probably would not include that line not right. include that fight in that way without um a different type of apology yeah so you're right something feels very like glossed over and narcissistic about the way that this wraps but at the same time also feels like perfectly of its genre and era totally yeah and yeah. also the name of the i, I think he was the prof her professor right yeah. which is also problematic right his name is Sloane Cates. Sloane Cates, which right. is I such a soap opera name. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Very soap opery. Like, try to write something where the hero's name is Sloane Cates. You can't <laughs> yeah. do it. And that guy, that actor, is so perfect for that role. You know, he's got like the sleazy charm, the very like erudite, like I'm a professor, but like I'm clearly like just an asshole. Like, yeah, he he really only has that one scene, but he's very good. Yeah, I mean, you, you... And how he paints himself as the victim. Yeah. 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 Like, that sort of toxicity kind of translates also to what we're dealing with now in 2022. Right. Yeah. Um, do you think that... Do you think... I don't know the exact definition, but we've talked a lot about Manic Pixie Dream Girls from, uh, you know, the aughts in this podcast before. Do you feel like Drew Barrymore qualifies? I... I don't think as much. There is certainly an element of like, oh, this quirky girl came into my life and now I'm inspired. Um, there definitely is that element of it. But I think we also see a lot more of her and her motivations and her as a character. Even if like the Sloan Kate stuff is like a little thin, we are, it is like part of the story, right? And she feels like sort of an equal partner in the song that they're writing. And it's not, you know, I think a lot of, like, the Manic Pixie Dream Girl is, like, the guy projecting so much onto this female character that never really gets much depth added. And I think that, like, this has a little bit more for her to do. I think so, too. I think she has a lot more agency than maybe some of her rom-com predecessors, which was nice yeah. to see. I'll be honest, when this movie started and she comes yes. in as the plant waterer and she pricks her finger on a cactus and is like, do you have a band-aid? I need a band-aid. <laughs> yeah, she's clearly not good at watering plants. And then right. she's watering plants and it's just she just keeps going, right? <laughs> and she's sort of like, you know, rambling speech and everyone thinks she's like quirky and weird. And I'm like... Not another one of these, but right. I do feel like they give her a backstory and development and emotional depth, and that is that is nice. And also, like, I feel like you would accept nothing less from Drew Barrymore because she's just um, that kind of presence anyway. She right. manages to make, um, to give, like, a gravity to her characters, even though they are very, like, sunny and bubbly. They also have this maturity or something. Yeah, totally. Good for Drew right. Barrymore. We like her. Yeah, and I think her having a family, you know, not like her own kids, but, you know, her having her sister and her nieces and nephews and how she takes care of them. And, you know, like, she lets them stay up late, but she's not, like, doing anything that, like, is not relatable. Yeah. It's not overdone. It, ha yeah. it had a moment where I'm like, they're going to overcook this and I'm going to hate it. 
But it's not like, oh, everyone gets their own pint of ice cream today. <laughs> right. Yeah. What do you guys think of that um, relationship with her sister and uh, a brother-in-law and the kids and everything? Because I, I think the idea of having her sister be this huge Alex Fletcher fan is like, that's a really nice touch. Like, she doesn't even really know who this guy is, but her older sister is like, that's my number one crush. Oh, like, I think it works great. You slept with him? <laughs> what? <laughs> Um, no, I think it works great. I think it's actually a really nice foil. I have a sister who is 11 years my senior, and I, I don't know if I've talked about this in the podcast before, but my tender introduction to like a lot of pop music was via my sister, who was a teenager when I was really little. Like, I'm four, and in my sister's room, there's like a floor-to-ceiling poster of Prince from Purple Rain. So right. um, that is definitely a real thing where you're you're kind of aware of but also detached from your super older sisters like fascinations music taste shit like that so it's it's real to me that she's like this guy is not a big deal to me but i get why he's a big deal to you yeah totally i mean the brother-in-law doesn't really count in this movie right he's <laughs> he's, he's there to get dumped on. he's literally just there to be like the whipping post for everyone which is yeah i don't even remember what he looks like i don't even remember him (laughs) he barely stayed in my brain poor guy i think he's very charming he does get he does get a great moment at the cora concert because you know kristen johnson's covering the kid's eyes and then he's still just watching and she's like mad at him and he's like what i'm just watching the concert you did it just watching the concert (laughs) yeah that's great I think I enjoyed the kind of rival lyricist more the first time I watched it. The second time, he kind of stuck out like a sore thumb. Yeah. Like, what is he supposed to really represent other than some sort of comic relief? Like, he's crazy, right? Like, he's just an asshole. Yeah, and I don't know that, like, that character, I feel like, has less of a realistic, like, counterpoint in real life. You know, so he's, like, this pop lyric writer who wrote a song with Avril Lavigne but like writes these really weird dark you know poetic lyric like it doesn't really make sense to me and then for him to like keep showing up is also weird you know it's like this weird punchline of him at the Cora concert when they're singing way back into love and he's like rolling his eyes it's like yeah like I don't know that this is doing anything for me. I mean, I think they could have easily not or limited that character, and it would have been fine. I, what's funny to me is the various portrayals of writers in this movie, because I'm a writer. That's what I do for my job uh, when I'm not doing this. My real job is I'm a writer. Uh, I'm not a songwriter, but it's kind of the same difference, right? And you have these like two like super stereotypical portrayals of writers. It's like, oh, you're quirky and weird. You don't know how to water plants and you'd rather like go get breakfast and take a walk than write the verse right now, which is actually true. That is my creative, no, that is that's my creative process. It's like, I'm just gonna go get a breakfast burrito and I think I can probably knock this out. Uh, but like his portrayal is like that very like angsty, dark, yeah. uh, I'm a diva, nothing's good enough for me, this is art. So you have like these very stereotypical portrayals of what writers actually are. But as a pop song lyricist? Right. It's weird, right? Because both of them kind of tread this territory of like, she's got this literary background, who knows what's going on with that rival guy, I don't know his deal. But <laughs> yeah. clearly they've taken like some stereotypes and just sort of like applied yeah yeah which one is supposed to be van dyke parks 
<laughs> I guess him. I don't know. <laughs> God, there's somebody somebody make a movie with Van Dyke Parks. Oh, please. In it. I love him so much. Yeah. Van Dyke Parks, come on the come on the podcast. You're my favorite person in the universe. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, just point a camera at him and let him like ramble in these weird sayings for an hour and a half. Like, we I'd wouldn't that. have to do anything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For everything that they get right in the movie, this lyricist guy is just why. It's why? a why. It's also easy to be nitpicky because it's a small film. It's not a big cast. There isn't this huge ensemble. There, you know, n- nothing is really wasted. So. It stands out, I think, more than it might in a movie with a, a larger ensemble cast happening. Oh, yeah. And too much of Brad Garrett complaining about his ex-wife. Well, Brad Garrett, I again, like, I'd rather just pretend someone else was in this movie. I'm sorry. Whoa. Apologies to the Brad Garrett fans. I'm sorry. He's just one of I was people. just about to say, I could have used more Brad Garrett. Really? I don't know. It's just... It, you know how, like, some people, everybody has their favorite, like, Seinfeld character, and then the characters that kind of tend to get on their nerves, right? Yeah. So Brad Garrett's kind of that, one of those sitcom figures for me where I'm like, I think, I think no. Wow. That's just a I think he thing. Was, I think he was fine. He was fine. But I think they could have given him something better to do. Just, yeah. again, I think a little bit too much of that stereotypical manager thing happening. His character probably could have been a little bit um, funny. I guess it's that manager stereotype of, like, they manage other people's lives, but they can't manage their own. Absolutely. kind of what they're going for? Bumbling, bumbling um, manager that's got, like, the busy life because he's got to be at, like, T-ball, but he's also, like, you know, trying to negotiate <laughs> Knott's Berry Farm. Uh, no, I'm just going to say it's it's weird, like that dinner scene he's on this date with uh, just a random woman you know she's only there for that scene right just someone who's not his wife who he's on a date with but it just felt like it it felt like too unnecessary like we you know we're introducing this character for no reason really other than to give her a dress she's literally just a device so that drew barrymore can swap dresses because she looks all grubby and she has to go confront her ex and then like put on this too small like super sexy red dress that's yeah. the, the only reason she's there. Also, again, I'm sorry to the Brad Garrett fans. I'm so sorry. But, like, th- this woman in the red dress is, like, way too good for Brad Garrett's character in this situation. Yeah. Like, where did he pick her up? Maybe he picked her yeah. up at, like, the Weight Watchers place? Like, what happened? In, like, weird, where yeah. did he find her? She's way too good for him. It's very, yeah, it was very, very dignified, very yeah, smart. It's very weird. Very helpful. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you, not who you would, you know, picture, like, mid-divorce Brad Garrett like losing all my money manager and he's got this like very chic like smart woman it was very odd I almost didn't think they were on a date at first I had to watch the scene again (laughs) right to be like oh are they friends is it a a, who knows oh yeah okay but again I, I think so many of these things like um they kind of get overshadowed in a good way by just how fantastic Drew Barrymore and Hugh Grant are. And because they're so much of the movie, like they're so dominant in this, like there's, I think scarcely a scene where they're not in it. They're not in the scene. I don't even remember a scene where they're one of them isn't there. Right. So if you have one of them on screen at any given time, you've still got like a pretty enjoyable film happening. Totally. Uh, one thing of restraint that Mark Lawrence did which I appreciate which I appreciated he didn't try to like shoehorn in some sort of like cameo from other people that would be considered like Alex Fletcher's equal it wasn't like oh 
here's a pep talk from Art Garfunkel or from John Oates. <laughs> yeah. The movie doesn't do that. And that's why it's, I think, kind of nice, right? It really does focus on their relationship and it doesn't get distracted at, or bloated by other things, which I think a lesser movie with less restraint would absolutely do. Because you could totally have like a bunch of different washed up 80s stars do cameo in this film. And there are no cameos like that in this. Right. They sort of, they just allude to them through this um, uh, battle of the 80s has been show i do love that joke that runs throughout the movie i love the joke about like oh what if somebody told you that like you weren't any good and then he starts going off about like oh bob dylan did it has some really really (laughs) great like awesome delivered lines at the end of the movie where she's gonna leave to florida and like she doesn't want to see him anymore she doesn't want to be involved in the project she tells him she's going to florida and he and he says no one grows up in florida unless they're an orange Yeah. (laughs) Which is like a great line that he delivers it so well. There's some really like very crisp, snappy, like writing moments. It's it's good. Like it works. Yeah. Also, celebrity boxing is something that I kind of predicted would happen. Yeah, I was wondering. I was like, was that a thing in 2007? Or did they also get ahead of that? I don't know. At least it wasn't as popular as it is now with like Jake Paul apparently having a new career of just beating the shit out of people. You know, now I really want to go back to 2007. Yeah. If that's where we are, as a culture, as a people. <laughs> yeah. But I like how the championship bout, I think, is Tiffany versus Debbie Gibson. Yeah, that's a good fight. Who would, who would win, though? I think Debbie Gibson's got that. Debbie Gibson seems like the tougher of the two mall girls. I think Debbie Gibson would, like, roll some quarters, you know? <laughs> At, at, like exactly. in, inside the Claire's. Wow. Yeah. Strong words. <laughs> Roll some quarters. She get out the like extra stronghold hairspray. And do you have other stories about middle school that you'd like to uh, share on the podcast, Nicole? Uh, you know, not today, but give it time. <laughs> give it time. I don't have a very delinquent past, just an embarrassing one. So. I mean, we'll take the knots, Barry Storm. The Knott's Berry Farm performance today. It's all you get for today. But yeah, I mean, great film. That's really the gist of it, I think. I always like to ponder if if you, to divorce the soundtrack from the film, like, is this a soundtrack you would listen to, like, in the car, in your headphones, on a walk? Or does it really have to live within the movie for you? Well, I think it's tough, like, if you if I hadn't seen the film, it would be confusing. Because... <laughs> Because it really bounces around, right? It's right. like we have the the pop eighty the eighties song "Pop Goes mm-hmm. My Heart," and then we have "Buddha's Delight," and then we have "Meaningless Kiss," and then we have "Entering Booty Town." You know, it, it's so it's really uh, jumping all over the place. But I did l- listen through the whole soundtrack earlier today, and it like yeah, I mean it's great. All these songs, it's actually especially nice because of like the chorus songs in the movie. We only really get like little snippets of. And the full versions are like pretty good aughts pop songs. Yeah, they're jams. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So yeah, I think it'd be weird if I had never seen the film. I don't know that I would get it. But having seen the film, I think it works as a soundtrack. Uh, bringing it back to that video randomizer thing that we were talking about. Like if I was doing like an 80s playlist and Pop Goes My Heart like got thrown in the middle of that, like I'd be all about it. Yeah, totally. Or if I was doing like a 2000 aughts like pop star playlist and like entering booty town came on i'd be like all right let, 
let's just go with it. Yeah. I think as in, there's some individual tracks here that have placements elsewhere, that have applications elsewhere. I'm putting Entering Booty Town on like my running mix. It's great. Yeah. Slaps. Let's do it. It's really, what an explicit title. <laughs> You know, it just feels like now that we're, we keep saying it over and over again, it feels very, I mean, it's a lot. Enter I would like the Lonely time. Island to cover it. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like a Lonely Island. Like, it sounds like a parody title. Right? Like, it should be in the Popstar movie. Like, Cora yeah. should, there should be a sequel to Popstar where it's Connor for real and Cora going on yeah. tour together. Have you guys done Popstar on this podcast? No, I love that movie. Oh, I man. love that movie. Yeah. Uh, uh, two movies I would love to do are Pop Star and Walk Hard. Yeah. Oh, Walk Hard I find interesting. So um, those fake songs are written by Mike Viola. Who I'm trying um, to figure out how to get a hold of him. I yeah I I might know some people. Um, I'll try. But um, I feel like and I love Mike Viola. Like I love Mike Viola. Um, I saw him a solo tour this summer and I saw him play with Mandy Moore this summer too. Um, but does it feel like maybe they asked Adam and like he was busy or something and he was like, oh, you should get Mike to do it, you know? Yeah, they kind of run in similar circles, right? Like they both did a bunch of work on that thing you do. Yeah. And I think they both have a part in Josie and the Pussycats, too. So I feel like it's kind of like, oh, we're going to reach out to like a handful. Like I think uh, Dave Gibbs from the Gigolo Wants, I think yeah. he's also one of those like, oh, you need a movie song? Get one of those. Right, right, right. Um, and I'm just going to say they need to start calling Craig Wedren more about that because he's yeah, also amazing. And if anyone that. listening to this has not listened to your episode with Craig, uh, I highly recommend it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I can't believe how much, how many stories we get in that one hour with yeah. him. Yeah. Suitcases lit on fire, meeting Bjork. <laughs> Afternoon delights. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. This is no, what you're listen. missing if you're not listening to, to the podcast on the racks. Yeah. Thank you, Scott, for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a, a real pleasure to rewatch the film and to talk about it and uh, listen to the soundtrack some more. Yeah, it was so much fun to chat. And, uh, you know, obviously, big fan of your podcast, big fan of just chatting with you on social media in general. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, if people want to follow the podcast, it's a great song pod. That's GR number eight song pod because the problem with calling your podcast this is the greatest song i've ever heard in my entire life is that you can't uh make that your twitter handle even the acronym is too, it's long, too long to be a twitter handle so so uh yeah yeah and that's every other tuesday correct uh, uh it's wednesdays but we're like tuesday night usually but yeah um so check it out you know we have hopefully i don't know when this is coming out but we should have some exciting guests so and of course you can go back and listen to the the episode that you and i did together so yeah i had a great time talking to you about that yeah maybe maybe nicole can be on the podcast yeah please i would love that yeah let's be in touch so you are on twitter and instagram as well as TikTok. As well as TikTok. Yeah, we're trying to be more active on TikTok just because it's a, a whole different world. Uh, and we're making like content that's really just specifically video stuff for TikTok. So uh, check us out there too and get in touch with us and tell us what your favorite song is. So, 
And you can follow us on Instagram at SoundtrackCast, on Twitter at Soundtrack underscore your. And we're on Patreon as well if you want to join our membership. We've got a lot of fun things planned for you. Possibly a Sugar Ray concert in the future. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, please. I would love that. But uh, thanks again, Scott. And uh, hopefully we will have you back soon. Yes. Yeah, thanks so much. Time to exit Booty Town for now. <laughs> <laughs> We're never exiting Booty Town. It's a state of mind, really, Booty Town. It really is. Mm-hmm. Thanks for joining us this week on Soundtrack Your Life. Make sure to visit our website, soundtrackyourlife.net, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out, too.